0: This is Candice Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. All right, so Temper Temper, number four. Have the first three weekends of Temper Temper been helpful to you? Yeah? I'm going to stop asking. There we go. I'm going to stop asking if you've enjoyed them, because I preached for 59 minutes last week, so I'm just done with that question. Uh, But if they've been helpful to you, I'm happy. So I got to say, they've definitely been helpful to me. I have learned a ton diving into this series. Really, really enjoyed diving into the lives of Jonah, Joseph, and Job over the past three weeks. I promise I did not plan that they were all J names, but we're going to focus on yet another J name today. Any guesses? You guessed it first try. It's the name above every other name, right? The name of Jesus. And so we've examined our anger towards others in this series. We've looked at the role faith plays in forgiveness. We've even looked at our anger toward God last week and the assumptions that we make in that. And so if, if you haven't heard those three weekends, this has been a powerful series. Go back and listen. They're all updated on the podcast and on YouTube. Just go to fe.church slash live page to get all of that. Um, go back and listen. But today we're going to focus on another question. What does God get angry about? I think if I asked most of you that question on the street if I just approached people on the street most people would say well sin right that's that's the easy answer that's like the gimme answer that's it's like me asking a kid coming out of kids ministry what'd you learn about today and they say Jesus I, I think I don't know I'm probably right about that Jesus Jesus is my answer so it's a the give me answer right but is it that simple is God angry at our sin. You know, God's anger is something we don't often focus on that much in a very evangelical Pentecostal culture, right? I think mostly because we're called to spread the good news, the the good news. It is good news that God's not angry with us, that he uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans he loves us unconditionally and he sent his son to restore us into right relationship with God he's not angry at us there's nothing that you can do that would separate you from the love of God these are all the aspects of God we like to focus on right that is the good news but that's not to say that God never gets angry in fact throughout the Old Testament God seems really angry all the time. Anybody read through the, New, the Old Testament and, and realize this a little bit? Like, why is he so angry all the time? He's always having to punish his children. And he sends wars and inflicts slavery. He, he requires blood for sacrifices. Like, he just seems like sort of a, a bloody, angry God. But and then Jesus comes and he preached love and mercy and peace. And he offered his own blood as payment for our sin, and everything changed. We generally like to think of Jesus as this peace-loving pacifist, right? Gentle and kind and welcomed the little children to them that came and sat on his lap and the, the Jesus with kids all over him smiling is, is the one we like to picture, right? But does it have to be one or the other? Either an angry God or the, the peace-loving God? Did you know Jesus got angry too? I see Jesus a few times throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, getting a little angry, right? In Luke 17, too, he says, if you harm even one of these little ones, little children, better for you that a millstone be draped around your neck and you be dropped into the d- damaged children. I see Jesus get angry, too, when Lazarus dies. Notice this lately. Twice in that story, he gets angry. It's not at The people that are coming to tell him it's right before raising Lazarus from the dead. He gets angry. It doesn't really explain why. I'm sort of still figuring this one out. But maybe he's moving through the stages of grief just like we do. Anger is one of them. Even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still had to experience that pain of death. Or maybe it's just that death itself. The fact that it exists. Because of sin. It was never in God's plan. We ushered it in with, with sin. Maybe that's what he was angry about. You know, I see Jesus get angry at the Pharisees, the teachers of religious law. He, he gets angry at them a lot. He's harsh with them. He rarely speaks a not harsh word to them in the Gospels. I see Jesus even rebuke his own disciple. Remember the, the Peter incident? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Do you, do you have harsher words than that for a disciple? And, and Peter seems to just have sort of misdirected faith in that incident. Like he believed in Jesus so much that he thought he would never be defeated. Never will that happen to you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus can be harsh. you know when I see Jesus get angry in the temple... And we all know that story. This is the typical Jesus angry story where he's flipping tables. But there's twice that actually happens. Once in the beginning of his ministry and once near the very end. And in the incident in the very end, there's also this odd little passage, a very little passage, sandwiched right in the middle of the, what I've been affectionately calling the temple tantrum story. It has me sort of deep Dive thinking for a month now, I've been wrestling with this tiny little passage. We actually find it in two of the Gospels, Matthew 21 and Mark 11. It's the story of Jesus and the fig tree. Anybody know it? In Matthew 21, it's sandwiched in between two stories in Jerusalem, Jerusalem fig tree Jerusalem. In Mark 11 it's it's more fig tree Jerusalem, fig tree, but it's the same story two different disciples are telling it. And I read it in both passages and we're actually going to read it in both passages today as well to fully understand this weird little Jesus angry story. So let's start reading in Matthew 21 verse 18. In the morning as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And he noticed the fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered up. The disciples were amazed when they saw this and asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And listen to Jesus' answer. They asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And he answered, then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you will receive it. Is this an answer to their question? I mean, it kind of is, but we're talking about the fig tree, Jesus. What are you talking about mountains for? Right. Well, uh, He pivoted a little bit here. He didn't exactly, specifically, directly answer the question that they were Asking, he moved them into something else. And the more and more I thought about this passage, the less sense it made. Couldn't figure it out until I read it in context. And for that, we're going to go to Mark 11. We're going to read most of Mark 11 to fully understand what's going on here. Mark 11 verse 1 says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? And they said what Jesus told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, just hang on here for one second because it's not only important to understand the biblical context of what's going on here but also the cultural context, the historical context. This is the method with which returning kings from war entered Jerusalem. This wasn't just any entrance into Jerusalem. This is culturally how leaders entered Jerusalem. Royalty. You understand that you didn't just honor a normal everyday human being, somebody from Galilee like this. This was a big moment. It was an honor and celebration worthy of royalty. And they were honoring Jesus in this way. And listen to what they said. Praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. Even the words they're saying are directed at more than just a man. They were acknowledging that something big was happening here. They they fully expected him to come in to Jerusalem and go straight to the palace, the place of government. They, they wanted Jesus to overthrow the power that had held them captive for so long, that had mistreated them, had enslaved them, distorted their religion, kicked them while they were down, looked down on them. They wanted him to come and overthrow their government. The hysteria was Such at the time of Jesus' ministry, this point at Jesus' ministry, that everyone would have heard about this. I mean, it was a big moment. Caesar himself would have heard about this. There's not a small thing about what happened here. Matthew 21.10 says, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. But did Jesus go to the palace? Did he go to the place of government? Verse 11 says, So Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. What? What did we just read? Right? This must have been the most anticlimactic moment in the entire Bible. Like the entire city is in an uproar. They're honoring you as royalty. And you, you go to the temple, you look around, and you go home? What just happened? And the people of Jerusalem thought this huge showdown was going to happen. God was going to rain down fire, or, or walls were going to come crashing down, or, or there was going to be darkness from heaven, or something crazy was going to happen. And nothing happened. Now I wonder what the disciples we thinking and feeling at this time I imagine the entire three years they were following Jesus just to be this huge whirlwind of confusion and they almost never get a straight answer these amazing things are happening that they just can't even wrap their brains around and such love is exhibited and they're relearning everything they thought they knew about God and every time they turn around Jesus is doing some other weird thing constantly sending them out into storms and then walking on the water past them he's feeding the 5,000 and then not feeding people he's all over the place like we look back and think how could they not have faith but we have hindsight (laughs) they didn't they must have been so confused he shows up in Jerusalem like he does looks around at the temple, not the palace, and he goes home. Verse 12. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. It hadn't been for that one line, I think I would have understood this passage a lot earlier. It was too early, In the season for fruit, and yet Jesus still says to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. See, they had redesigned the temple, essentially. They made it so that you basically had to pay for the big sacrifices to be able to get into the inner courts, essentially to pass to the next level of Jewishness or to the next level of relationship with God of status in their culture, They had to pay more. The rich could enter. The poor had no shop. The rich could be clean in God's sight. The poor were looked down on and told they were worthless. And then kicked while they were down too. They were told that God was angry with them, that punishment was coming. Maybe even they were told that they were the reason that God was not saving Israel from their oppressors. The rich, meanwhile were getting educated they could speak in words and religious concepts that the poor could never understand they they the rich bought special prayer boxes and robes and they would parade themselves through the streets showing off their worthiness their righteousness their specialness and the poor had no chance No chance of being in God's presence. No chance of leveling up in their religious world, in their culture, in their lives. The Pharisees and teachers of religious law were no better than Rome. No better than their oppressors. In fact, they were worse because they were doing it to their own people. For nothing but selfishness and pride. They made a very accessible God seem inaccessible to the average person. They made God seem aloof and distant and angry. They they were spiritually abusing people in the name of God. Setting standards so high, only the rich and educated could ever reach them. And while appearing to have God all figured out, they couldn't have been further from him. While appearing to understand more about God than the average person. They could not have understood less. They had the power to know him better. They had the education. They they had the resources. They had the time. They could have been a blessing to their people, but they couldn't humble their hearts. They chose power over obedience. They chose status over humility, and they chose pride over people. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea. And it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen. and Have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against. So that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Wheels turning yet? Have it all figured out yet? Have it all fig- figured out yet? Get it? That got a bigger laugh, Jason. He gave me that joke. <clears throat> Remember that the, the beauty of the Bible is in the details. Here's another Bible study tip. The Bible explains the Bible. The Bible interprets. The Bible. The amazing thing about this series is I, uh, the very first week of Temper Temper. Now, I had come up with the the concept for the series uh, like two or three months before Christmas. I knew I wanted to preach about how to handle anger in our lives, and so as I was sitting in the, the very first week of planning for Temper Temper. God sort of laid out the whole thing for me. I had every single scripture I wanted to use. Maybe not at all figured out, but I had every one of them. And so I was already looking at Jesus and the fig tree on week one. Anybody remember what we studied on week one? No? Jonah. Thank you. Jonah. Remember at the end of Jonah? Who was here for temper, temper number one? Jonah. Remember at the end of Jonah's story, God gave Jonah an object lesson. A, a tree sprouted up as he was sitting on that hill just hoping Nineveh would burn. Right, A tree sprouted up and it gave him shade. And it's the first time we see Jonah happy. In the entire story, he's comfortable finally sitting under that tree waiting for fire to rain down from heaven. And then God sends a worm and it eats the roots of the tree and the tree withers and dies. Jonah's mad again, blaming God all over again. And God says, did you do anything to put that tree there? Did you deserve that comfort, that tree? Then how can you be mad that it withered, right? Though you did nothing to put it there. He's essentially saying you got to humble yourself, Jonah. You don't deserve the comfort you think you do. How can you possibly pass judgment on a whole entire city when I haven't? He gave him an object lesson to understand God's heart. And when I realized that in the week of Jonah, as I'm considering Jesus and the fig tree, suddenly it clicked. The fig tree is an object lesson too. I now believe that the fig tree was an object lesson here for the disciples specifically. And for us today as well. The disciples needed this object lesson. They were the men that would go on to interpret all these confusing events for us for the next 2,000 years. right? The men that would go on to develop and implement Jesus' invention of the church rather than the temple they needed this object lesson. And throughout the Old Testament, if they had just thought a little bit deeper about it, it, they would have understood it immediately. Because throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as God's vineyard, as his tree, and as his planting over and over and over again. He constantly likens them to a plant of some sort. I mean, I have these Passages all linked in your sermon notes. Judges 9, Isaiah 3 and 5, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 17 and 19. And all throughout the Old Testament, God talks about Israel as a plant. Disciples would have understood this if they had just thought a little deeper about it. If they had put what Jesus had done into the context of the other scriptures, they would have realized what Jesus was doing. The fig tree is a foundational metaphor For Israel, the fig tree specifically. It also is talking about her, Israel's spiritual health. What's going on underneath everything else. The prophet Isaiah says the time had come for God's people to yield fruit that would bless the world. In Isaiah 27 and several times throughout the prophets like Micah, Jeremiah, Hosea, God is described as inspecting Israel for early figs literally, early figs as a sign of spiritual fruitfulness. Micah 7, Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, they're all described, describing God as looking for those early figs and he finds nothing. Micah 7, 1 says, not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. And in two of Israel's exiles, the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile, God pours out the curse of barrenness. And Israel becomes a rotten fig, Jeremiah 29, 17. A rotten fig. But all is not lost, even in the prophets in the Old Testament. God promises to one day replant Israel and produce healthy figs from her again. Joel 2, Amos 9, Micah 4, Zechariah 8, Ezekiel 36, all talk about her being replanted and producing healthy figs again. I mean, if the disciples had just thought about the scriptures for a minute they would have put two and two together here they would have seen what Jesus was doing it was an object lesson a striking practical example of the principles and ideals that Jesus wanted to communicate and I believe there are three incredibly important principles or ideals Jesus was trying to communicate with this object lesson at least three three that we're going to go over today number one Jesus was displaying his power and authority over all creation. Proving to them that he held the power to do what he did. Not just to curse the fig tree, but to flip the tables, to offer himself as a sacrifice, to fulfill the law, and to begin something new. To begin the church in place of The temple. It's interesting though that he did this when only the disciples were around. If you keep reading in those passages, you actually see the leading priests and elders literally ask him straight up, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? They said. They want to know why Jesus just came in and made a mess of the temple like he owned the place. Well, he did. Right? Who gave you the right, they said. Jesus was proving that he had the right, but not to the leading priests and and elders. He didn't do that miracle, that inverted sort of backwards miracle in front of them. He did it in front of the disciples. Make no mistake, Jesus could have prevented the cross. He chose not to. If he had done the fig tree thing in front of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, in front of the crowds of people, they would have bowed down before him. They would have understood that he was the son of God. He could have prevented the cross. He could have had all the power he wanted in that time and place. He chose not to. Every time they questioned him. They gave him a chance to defend himself. He chose to stay silent. He chose to not answer their questions so that the cross could happen. He put himself on that cross. I mean, early in Jesus' ministry, we see him slip away from the crowds a few times. He can get away. He can trap them in their own questions. He can flip it back around on them. He did that a lot in the beginning, but not towards the end. He knew he had to go to that cross. He chose not to. And so him choosing to do the fig tree miracle in front of the disciples was intentional. They needed that lesson, not the crowds and not the leading priests and teachers of religious law. And I don't think the disciples were really meant to fully understand the fig tree metaphor in that moment either. I think it was meant to dawn on them over time. I think it was meant for a later lesson, something they would need after they saw the crucifixion, after the temple was destroyed 70 years later. In that same generation, the temple was obliterated. It's never been rebuilt since. There's a reason for that. And, and I don't think they were meant to fully understand the fig tree metaphor in this moment. It's amazing how much we have to see before we can understand how much we have to experience before we understand like you cannot tell a 17 year old kid that they don't know everything it's not possible it cannot be told right the 27 year old knows they've they've seen a thing or two experienced a little bit of adulthood maybe they know they don't know everything by then but you can't just give that knowledge to a kid they have to experience it you can't tell a non-parent, what it feels like to hold that baby for the first time. It's a feeling beyond anything you can tangibly explain and put words to, right? But once you've experienced it, you get it. There are just some things you have to experience before you can understand. God knows us so well, so well. He knows if he explained something straight up, we still wouldn't get it. So some truth he hides in layers. Not because he doesn't want us to know it, but because he wants us to experience it. wants us to understand it on another level. He knows he can't just hand us some knowledge. We have to dig for it ourselves. And I think that's what he was doing here with the disciples. I think he was displaying his power and authority over all creation And trying to give them the information that they had it too. They had that same power and authority that they would have when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they would walk out uh, uh, inventing, developing the church later on in life. They were meant to understand the fig tree metaphor and their power and authority over all creation. Number two, I think Jesus was also demonstrating the consequences of fruitlessness. He said, may no one ever eat your fruit again. (laughs) May no one ever eat your fruit again. Those words mark the end of an era for that tree because of its fruitlessness. And Jesus' crucifixion marked the end of an era for the temple and its priests because of its fruitlessness. To be without fruit in the Bible, the biblical definition of fruitlessness is really more to be thoroughly unhelpful, just thoroughly unhelpful to anyone, even yourself. God is life. You understand? He, he is life. He is not just like the air we breathe. Like the song said, he is the air we breathe. If God were to up and move away, we wouldn't have life anymore. God is life. And so the closer we get to him, the more We become that way too. We are created in his image after all. He radiates life. And the closer we get to God, we radiate life. That's why some churches call themselves life-giving churches. We were meant to go out into this world and give light and love and life. We're supposed to be radiating it. And not only just life, but life abundantly. Joy, peace, hope. Hey, we're meant to give life abundantly. The opposite is evil, and evil kills life. It's Satan's three jobs, right? Kill, steal, and destroy. Evil is destructive because it goes against the nature of God. God is life. So when Jesus says, may you never eat your fruit again, it's because something is being thoroughly unhelpful. It is no longer life giving and he cuts it off at the roots. That fig tree, like the bustling temple courts during Passover was putting on a great show. It was leafing up a storm. Looked super leafy and good and that made it all the worse. It's one thing to lack fruit out of season. It's another thing to lack it while pretending you have it. I think this last inspection of the temple. Remember, Jesus had done it once before. I think this last one, three years later, toward the end of his ministry, was fruit inspection. I think Jesus was looking for any reason to save the system. Any reason to not pass judgment. Any reason to save it. And he found nothing. Just like the fig tree. Nothing helpful to anyone. There was no fruit. That, that fig tree, just like the temple, is supposed to be feeding people. But once again, failed. The Passover celebration, the, the hysteria around him coming into town, the crowds, the singing, it was all a show. Jesus enters God's house of prayer and finds it a den of robbers instead. Lots of action, lots of bustle, but no righteousness leaves but no fruit Jesus came and he cursed that way of doing things don't get me wrong sacrifice through blood covering our sins but Jesus didn't come to abolish the law he came to fulfill it he fulfilled the purpose of the temple and we no longer need it to access God because we have Jesus he came to fulfill the, the law, and now there's no reason to allow yourself to be abused by a religion to know God. We have direct access, direct access. Now the church is meant to be an organized body of believers on a mission together to save the world with the good news. It's not our direct access to God anymore. You don't have to come into this building to talk to God. You can do that literally anywhere. This is meant for us to come together, encourage each other, serve each other, lay our lives down for each other, and then go out into the world and preach the good news together and see the world changed. Jesus invented the church, and he cursed the old way of doing things. He used his disciples to see it accomplish, and he does the same today. He was demonstrating the consequences of fruitlessness Third, I think Jesus was setting parameters for his church. Not only was he looking back at the temple and the old ways of doing things and seeing the fruitlessness and cursing it, but he was giving them a little bit of vision that that would dawn on them later. I think he's setting parameters for his new church and, and he's demonstrating the stakes of not only failing to produce fruit, but of giving a fruitful impression and failing to back it up. He's sending a very clear signal you know our lives can look like they're in leaf we can look like we're leafing all over the place our our leaves may look like those of a super mom right of a winner of of the perfect family an a-team christian the perfect serve team member with an overstuffed schedule of ministry activities church seven nights a week Right? But the root may be withered. There may be no actual fruit under those leaves of holiness or intimacy with God, And what's worse, our leaves sometimes fool even us. We stuff our schedules, more things, more things, more things, more things. We look like the perfect Christian, but we've got nothing real going on under the leaves. Underneath the tithing and the serving and the giving, there's nothing real going on with God. And our churches can do the same. A church's leaves may look impressive with booming attendance and capital campaigns and clever pastors and impressive music. But what will the Lord find upon close inspection? Will he find only leaves? Will he find figs too? If you were a tree, what fruit would you be producing? If Jesus came and inspected you today, is there anything God could use on your tree? Some of us are choosing to look great over usefulness. It looks green and leafy, and I fit in with all my Christian friends. It may provide shade to one or two for a time, but it's not going to last long. Is there anything God could use on your tree? Are you sustaining someone else with the fruit that you are producing? I like to imagine the disciples 10, 20, 30 years later, still processing back through some of these memories with Jesus. And maybe they're sitting around the fire, feet up after a long day of planting churches and proclaiming the gospel in a new town and getting persecuted for it. Maybe they were tired and in pain and no money or property to call their own or no wife, kids to to claim as their own. Maybe they're tempted to give it all up and go home and settle down. Nobody wants me here anyway. And maybe they remember the fig tree. Maybe it motivated them to continue to bear fruit even when it was difficult. In season and out of season as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Do you know I met... I met a guy last night who raises fig trees here in Adams County. He said, I actually have a fig tree right now that's producing fruit but has no leaves. I said, how do you do that? Tell me about it. How does that happen? He said, well, I have to bring them in in the winter. (laughs) I can't leave them out, exposed, exposed. To the elements, uh, they're potted. I have to bring them in in the winter and then they'll continue to produce fruit in season and out of season. Oh, I just got goosebumps. (laughs) The Holy Spirit enables us to produce fruit in season and out of season because that's how we're protected from the elements. You have to be planted in the Word or you're just out there exposed. The world will... Chew you up and spit you out unless you're hidden within the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to produce fruit in season and out of season. The only other option is fruitlessness. It may be leafy fruitlessness, but either way, it's useless to a hungry world. When Jesus comes to inspect, I want to be found bearing fruit, leading others to Jesus, challenging myself to go deeper and dig for truth and allow Jesus into deeper and deeper parts of my soul to transform me from the inside out. I want to be found bold and brave and fierce for Jesus. I want to be found not just great, not just famous, not just successful and powerful, but fruitful. We can't pursue growth and growth alone as a church. We have to pursue usefulness, effectiveness, fruitfulness. And if that means I have to give up more of my time, more of my Netflix time, more of my couch time, more of my downtime, if it it means I have to stop looking at the church as what I can get out of it, it's all about me, and I have to start looking at it as what I can give into it, so be it. That means I have to stop using it as a status symbol. Start seeing it as a serving opportunity. A people that I can pour myself into. I have to stop looking at the, of the world outside these walls too as piranhas and leeches. They're, they're just out to get me. And I have to start having the heart that Jesus had for them. It's time to lay down our lives, guys. Because there's really only a couple of things Jesus ever got angry about. Pride, fruitlessness, and faithlessness. When he comes to inspect, I want to be found humble, fruitful, and faithful. And isn't that what we've been studying the past few weeks? Humble. Fruitful, faithful. Jonah needed to humble himself. Joseph was fruitful, even in the midst of unimaginable losses and mistreatment. Job was learning how to remain faithful, enduring seasons of loss he couldn't immediately explain. The good news today is that Jesus gave us all the tools we need to be all of those things. Humble, Fruitful, faithful, just like he gave to them. He gave Jonah a whale to correct his course. He gave him a city ripe for the repentance picking. He gave him a tree to grow and die and he sent an east wind to teach him humility. He gave Joseph admin skills, leadership Skills, management skills, and dream interpretation on top of it. Maybe a little patience, too. He gave him fruitfulness, in season and out of season. And to Job, he gave some friends to grieve with him, process with him. And he sent a fourth friend, Elihu, to make him question his assumptions about God so that he could remain faithful to correct his course keep him faithful humble fruitful faithful he's given you everything you need to to get through this season and not only to get through it to survive it but to thrive in it i'm not talking about money or wealth or riches and two car garages and fame and power and success necessarily but he's given you peace that passes all understanding. He's given you joy, unspeakable. He's given you hope anchored in things unseen, fruit in season and out of season. He's given you power and authority of the Holy Spirit. He's given you another in the fire. Not only has he given you all the tools, but he's, he's given you the paradigm with which to do it too. The church is the hope of the world. When each of us choose to let go of our anger towards others, our anger towards God, and allow ourselves to be angry at the same things Jesus gets angry about, we'll be unstoppable. Unstoppable. No longer tolerating pride in our lives. Or lazy sin stubborn fruitlessness, faithlessness that doesn't convict us to do anything helpful in our lives, when we curse those things in our lives instead of everyone around us, instead of at God, then and only then can we be useful in God's hands. When the fruit inspector comes around, I want to be found faithful, fruitful, humble, God, help us to die to our sinful natures. Help us to put pride away for good. To stop being lazy and fruitless. And to remain faithful in your presence. Convict our hearts, humble our hearts, draw us toward you that we would be the life-giving church you have called us to be. The life-giving people you've called us to be that we could look at the world and genuinely ask us to break our hearts for what breaks yours to be angry about the same things that you're angry about and to truly honestly deeply let go of anger at others let go of our anger toward you with heads bowed and eyes so closed. Maybe today you're saying, I've never experienced a relationship with God. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus does forgive you. He chose to forgive you. It's already been done. The cross happened 2,000 years ago. All you have to do today is claim it. Accept allow it to work in your life choose forgiveness today God wants to have those honest conversations with you he's not angry that you're angry he just wants to talk to you about it he can change your heart from the inside out some of you today I can feel it you're saying but you don't know what I've done you don't know who I am God couldn't possibly he has already forgiven you from everything all you have to do is say Jesus I accept your forgiveness and I want to live life your way because I can't do it on my own anymore it's really that simple maybe you're saying today you know I've walked with Jesus for a long time but I haven't been fruitful in a while I don't think I'm producing anything that would help anybody else. And I know God's called me to usefulness. I want to repent today. And I want to tell God I want to be used by him. I want to pray with you today. Anybody else praying that prayer? I want to be useful, God. Help me be fruitful. Father, thank you for every move towards you. Thank you for this series, for this line of thinking that you've given us, for helping us to give up our anger, our bitterness, and our unforgiveness at the past. Thank you for calling us to be a church that is vibrant, passionate, and selfless. Help us, Father. Let go of all of those things so that we can change the world with the message of the gospel. Help us experience your forgiveness and love on all new levels experience your presence like never before, the presence that heals us from the inside out so that we can walk out of here and see the world the way that you see it. Truly change the world with the message of the gospel. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fe.church/imn. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.
1: your love for me it's not disappointing i
2: close to those lungs collecting that oxygen and then bringing it to every part of your being if God's love is the air you breathe it has to spread to everything every part of your life it, it, it can't be contained to one section you, you can't say yes uh, God's at church money's at work family's at home what I do with my friends is separate you, you can't you can't segregate those things If his love is real, it has to influence, impact, infect every single part of your life. It's too deep not to. The only thing that prevents his love is us saying, no, no, you don't get to go there. No, I don't want that. If you breathe him in, if you allow him in, if you just lean on him, he has to influence, impact, and change every part. God, your love, your love, your love, it calls us to a new place, it calls us out of ourselves, it calls us to change, to care, to to hurt for the broken world around us. It calls us to want other people to experience it. People are without oxygen, they are dying. Let us be so filled with love and compassion that we could not leave them there, choking, needing your breath in their lungs. Allow your love to change the way we view this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A serious temper, temper. I, I've realized that anger is so much about me. Me, me. And and God's fruitfulness is more about what I can be for others. It's, it's not about me. It's about looking at how, like, how can I can I help? How can I serve? How can I become fruitful? Not, I was hurt. I was upset. I was not given fruit. I wanted some strawberries. So listen, this week, I think I think that last little bit Candace talked about being, being humble, having faith, being fruitful. Let's find ways that we can apply those in our lives so that we can become what God has in store for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this series that looks at the heart, looks at where we're going, looks at what you have in store for us. And then we say, God, would you humble us? Would you grow our faith. Would you make us more fruitful so that we can let go of our anger and grab hold of your truth. I ask that we would live like no one else and we would be different than the world we're in so that we can grow constantly in the way that you have called us. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this church and thank you for these people. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much Freedom Valley. We'll see you guys next week.